writer, director, and bad bowler. Oh, hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and macaroni and cheese enthusiast. I'm eating it right now, but I'm trying not to eat it on camera. I literally am eating the same thing, but mine's cold. What? Yes. Are we two six-year-old children making this (laughs) podcast? Is this a big situation? gonna make a joke before we started recording being like anyone else eat cold mac and cheese during the break no mine is hot mine is hot but wow Wow. okay so we basically this is our coming out this is a big situation we are two (laughs) uh 10 year old girls who have been who have been uh made into adults and now we make this podcast anyone who doesn't like mac and cheese or looks down on it what's that about it's just pasta with cheese we're sponsored this episode by mac and cheese just all just of the it feeling yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is just between us a variety show filled with heartfelt advice ridiculous games and brutal honesty can i read some um reviews sure okay well we should explain why we're reading reviews. oh please go for it Uh, We're coming up on that scary time where they may or may not renew this podcast. (laughs) So we want more people to listen and we need more people to show their support for the show. Share it with your friends, write a review. And if your review is funny and clever or just very, you know, kissing our ass, we might read it on air. That's true. And this review comes from Machine in the Studio. And it says, funny, smart and cool. I came to the show after Allison and Gabby were guests on the Can I Pet Your Dog podcast. They were funny and loved their dogs, and that was enough for me to check out their own podcast. Their show has a great format that brings out the best in the hosts, Gabby's sense of humor, and Allison's dedication to honesty to herself and the audience. Each show follows the same format, listener question, interview with guests, discussion about specific topics. They kind of left out hypotheticals, but I do like getting a positive review just because of our dogs. I'm upset that my sense of humor was not noted. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, I feel as funny as you. Well, you are. If, if you. not more please so. Re- please, re- please leave a review saying how funny you think I am. I like this one from Jay Sullivan Burns. It just says, I like it. And then in the body, it says, it's very good. <laughs> Honestly. Honestly, guys, that's all we need. Yeah, you can just, if you want to just leave that, I think that's perfect. Also, if you want to just, like, tell your friends to just, like, click play, but they don't have to listen, that would be huge for us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I would prefer that they listen, actually. No, we prefer you listen. Yeah. But this is, like, people who buy their own book, so it goes to the bestseller list. Uh, <laughs> yeah, people don't know that there's just loopholes to, get to being on the bestseller list, that it doesn't... I don't want to actually say... Can we not say that it doesn't mean anything? Because we are on it, and I do want it on my tombstone. Oh, for us, it means the world. Exactly. You know what I mean? It means something in our hearts. And that's and in the hearts of other people who um, don't realize that there's just a trick to get on it. But we didn't do that. We didn't do the trick. We got on it for real. We didn't real. do the trick. For real. So exactly. we're good people. That's what that means. We, we did it for real. Um. <laughs> yeah, Gabby and Allison, colon, they did it for real. <laughs> We've got a great episode for you guys this week. We're going to be talking to journalist Tuck Woodstock uh, all about what's going on in Portland. And then we're going to be discussing cohabitating because me and my partner now live together. Woo! Oh boy. But first, hit it! International question! In- 
International question! International question! Bridget, Seattle. Bridget says, how do I bring up money and social class with my wealthier friends who seem uncomfortable about the topic? Oh, boy. Uh, it's kind of a long email, so I might jump around a little bit, but Bridget writes, I've been reading a lot lately about how class and wealth affect your social development and really grappling with the ways it has impacted me throughout my life. For context, I grew up white and lower income, but had a lot of middle class privileges that typically accompany wealth. I lived in a predominantly middle class neighborhood. I have a college educated parent and I went to a specialized public school where my peers were all middle to high income. Mm. I'm incredibly grateful for privileges I've had access to, but also growing up hyper aware of how different your financial standing is from your peers can be really exhausting, especially when nobody acknowledges it. I'm 20 now and my friends are still almost entirely from significantly higher income backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to navigate the way that I experience class in America. I want to be able to discuss these things openly with my friends, but they seem to think that acknowledging their privilege in a vague way is sufficient. I'm frustrated that they refuse to dig deeper into their sense of entitlement and all the invisible financial advantages they have, not just in relation to me, but to an entire other class of people. I'm frequently shut down, told that it's an inappropriate topic of conversation, or met with complete defensiveness. Mm -hmm. So basically, how do you... Talk to your friends about money and how do people from more privileged backgrounds um, become more comfortable acknowledging their privilege? Sure. And I, I talk about this a lot on my show, Bad With Money, but it is a thing where it's it's super taboo to talk about money. And this is the thing that's come up on the show is that for wealthy people, it is that is actually where it's taboo. Wealthy people don't mm -hmm. want to talk about money. They never talk about money. They They are very uncomfortable when it comes up. In my research for lower income people and people in poverty, they actually talk about money quite a lot. Um, and so I think this idea that it is taboo, I think, started with and comes from like wealthier people who see it as tacky or, um, you know, ba yeah, basically they just see it as tacky or uncouth. I think it's also, um, especially in the situation she's talking about, they feel uncomfortable. It's a very weird thing to talk about your privilege, right? Because what does talking about it accomplish, you know? And I think, I personally think it's really important to talk about because it proves that, like, everything that is happening is not happening because people start off on a level playing field. No, absolutely not. There's almost no generational wealth um, for African-Americans and black people in this country. Like, we did an episode on reparations uh, on Bad With Money, and, like, even if you gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to black people in this country, they would still not reach the level that white people have in terms of generational wealth because they weren't given that opportunity because of slavery. You're not talking about equality. Like there's no, there's almost no way to reach generational wealth equity in terms of the racial gap therein. And as someone who is like extremely privileged in that area and whose parents are wealthy and who has benefited off of that immensely in many, many ways, it, it's tricky because it's like, when do I bring it up? Do I bring it, you know, mm -hmm. like, do I acknowledge it? Do I like I don't ever want the intention to be that I like make people feel bad about about it. And I try to be super cognizant of the fact that like a lot of my friends don't come from that same background as me. Um, but I also don't want to act like I assume everyone's the same. And that's why I'm not bothering to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I heard you know? I heard some criticism. It is interesting. I heard some criticism for a different podcast where the the people that host the show make a lot of money and mm -hmm. They feel a pressure, I think, on the show to talk about as if they are broke. Um, oh, yeah. And 
I think that their audience was upset about it. And I think that's to your credit, you've never pretended to be broke. You've never like come to the audience and and acted like you were something you're not, which I think is part of what is annoying about this. Because I think, you know, she's talking about her her friends being defensive. And I think there is something too where your privilege is pointed out, specifically, not even racial, let's say, although it, they're very tied together, but your financial privilege is pointed out. And and the, the, the typical thing for someone to say when they get defensive is like, but I struggled, I had jobs, I did this, I did that. You know, they, mm-hmm. they list all the reasons why it doesn't matter. Um, and I think like, that that is the wrong approach because you're taking it as a, a moral judgment on you or or something that indicates that you're undeserving. Like, it's really just like acknowledging that something is happening f- because of these other things. And then what do you do once you reach that level or have that money? You know, like, how do you behave? What do you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I was like scrolling through Instagram or Twitter or something and saw something about how like, you know, no one whose parents like paid for their college should be allowed to be a comedian or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stuff like that where like if you come from wealth, then you shouldn't be like in the creative field. And when I read that, I was like, oh, and then I went, okay. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I was like, I totally understand why that person feels that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am. And and my takeaway from it again was just like, wow, I'm so lucky that I have been given what I've been given. There's no need for me to fight this person on this point. Absolutely. (laughs) It's punching down, to be honest. Yeah. And I also think it's important for me to say, like, yes, I I have had some incredible career success, but I also had two years of my life in my early 20s where my parents were just supporting me while I was just trying to get Mm -hmm. stuff going, Mm -hmm. you know? And, like, there was a year where, like, I just made maybe $10,000 total. And, like, that didn't matter because my parents were helping Mm -hmm. me. And so it allowed me to continue to do this job and pursue this career in a way that so many other people are not. Yeah. Um, And, like, I 100% acknowledge that. And I also, you know, in terms of like where I live, Mm -hmm. my parents own my condo. Mm -hmm. I pay rent far below what I should be paying in order to live here. Mm -hmm. Um, That is huge. It allows Jake and I to save in a really big way. Um, And I live in a place that is like significantly nicer than almost all of my peers. Mm -hmm. I feel like day to day, it's great for me. But when people come to my house for the first time, I, you know, feel a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And then I debate. I'm like, do I say that my parents own this condo and that I'm not paying the full amount that I should be paying? Or do I not say it? You know, like, again, like, I I truly don't know the answer. And I think that for me, what I'm trying to figure out is like, you say it sometimes, but you don't always say it, you know, Mm -hmm. like, so it like feels important for me, like in this moment when we're talking about this for me to like fully acknowledge that. But I also don't feel like I, it needs to be something that feels like I'm throwing it in other people's face all the time. Yeah, it's it's hard because then it comes down to like wealth distribution, um, mm-hmm. well, wealth redistribution and like what that looks like. Like, I think people have money and because they're so used to that environment or because they're so used to like it's really easy to get used to a certain lifestyle and then there's like how are you you start to be like well I well I need this many bedrooms or I need a pool like I saw Justin Bieber's house right and he's got Mm. like a house that has like 45 bedrooms and I was like why why do you need that 
And then I was yeah. like, he must like, it, it's either a show of wealth or he must convince himself that he needs 45 bedrooms. And like, I think you lose perspective or something. Like, I think you, you start to be like, if you're that wealthy, you're like, well, I need like on bad with money. I interviewed these, these people, um, this girl, Rachel Sherman about, uh, People, she interviewed a bunch of wealthy people and they were like, we spent $60,000 this month and they don't even know on what they did. They don't know. And it's like, I think it's because they, there's like a perspective lost or something where they're like, they think, well, I need this. I need that. I need this. Like, yes, this purse is $5,000, but I need it. If you come from a background of wealth, sometimes it's really hard to be like, do you actually need this? Like. Is there some better place for this money to go? I mean, I'm not coming from that kind of No, 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 no. I don't, like, I don't have a trust fund. Yeah. Um, My dad switched jobs when I was, like, in college. And when he switched that job, then our lifestyle improved a lot. Mm -hmm. But, like, growing up, it was, I mean, 100% absolutely privileged, way above what most people experience. But that that job change really kind of, like, shifted things. Mm -hmm. And, And my sister is loaded Mm -hmm. and her husband makes a shit ton of money and she lives in a mansion Mm -hmm. um and and it's i have had to retrain myself Mm -hmm. in terms of what i need what i'm willing to spend money on because i'm not making i mean i'm 100 percent fine yeah and like i'm i'm you know i make like i'll probably make like 100k this year Mm -hmm. and that's awesome but like I can't maintain the lifestyle of which I had become accustomed to. Yeah. Like with my family. Yeah. And like I will never most likely unless things get crazy ever be able to live the lifestyle that my own sister lives. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting in my brain how I have gone on that journey of like, oh, I don't need that. Yeah. Or like, why would I spend that much money on a purse? You yeah. Know, or like when I was growing up in that world, I absolutely would. Yeah. <laughs> but now I feel like even if I if I made a lot of money on my own, I think that my approach to money would be different um, than it would be if I had not gone through this time and with my friends and yeah and in my in my current peer group and you know like it, it's really made me reassess things yeah. and like what I think I need is like so dramatically lower than what I used to think that I needed it's so complicated too because I don't want to say I don't want to say what people should spend money on and I don't want to disparage anyone who wants purses and it's interesting that we went that I even went to purse because there's some sexism involved there um wherein we never also purses are just so crazy expensive. I know but to say that like you know we never talk about like men spending a lot on watches or whatever to be yeah. very gendered about the whole thing so it is mm-hmm. it is incredibly complicated I've never felt that my background means I've I deserve things but I also know that people do think that about me that like I think What do you mean Like if I like we've had this conversation where I mean, we can cut this if you want to, but we've had this conversation where you've said, you know, to me, like if you succeed, people will celebrate it. And if I succeed, people will be like, of course she did. And I think I've said that. Yeah. And I think that's like I think that's real, though. I think that's like really real because I think like and I don't know how I feel about the sort of like poverty porn or like pride porn of like. She did it. She pulled herself up by her bootstraps and like whatever, mm-hmm. because like I definitely have benefited from being white. Like mm-hmm. the main reason my dad never went to jail is I think because he's white. 
based on everything he's done, he should be in jail. I mean, not, but like, not he should, because again, like abolish prisons, but he would be in jail. Um, And so I think that like, it's so hard to unpack. I don't know, this feeling of like, of like, I've never felt like, uh, oh, because I came from this background, I deserve anything. But I think people view it that way about themselves or like other people who come from my background view it as like, well, I deserve this over this other person. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that. Um, I feel very complicated. Like, I think billionaires should redistribute their wealth. I think there's no reason for anyone Mm -hmm. to be a billionaire. I think there's, uh, it's, it's hard. Like, I would never say what that tweet said, but I also think that it creates an environment in Hollywood that like is an Ouroboros that feeds on itself where people don't do the introspective work. And so they only hire people that come from similar backgrounds to them. So then the content that is made is very like narrow-minded and privileged. Well, I also think that it's the issue of the fact that people cannot give the time to the craft or to... That's what happens. Because they have to get real jobs and they can't support themselves. And so the entry level into Hollywood is so poor paying that you almost have to be supported by your parents. Yes. And that's like what's so fucked up and like... 100% 100% a problem and I 100% benefited off of that. And so like your obligation, I feel, is then to mm-hmm. hire people who come from different backgrounds mm-hmm. and work to create projects with people. Like once you have a modicum of power, try to use that to lift up other people. Totally. I think a lot of people don't do that. I don't know. God, this is so, this is such a an intense conversation because- I feel I understand that your friends don't want to talk about it. And I think it's really great that you've been doing this work. And that sucks that they don't want to like discuss that with you because I think they view it as a personal moratorium. And it's really not. It is in some ways it's a personal moratorium, but it's also so systemic. And like a lot of things from my show, like a lot of things need to change systematically before Mm -hmm. the average person Mm -hmm. can even do anything about this. However, there is a world in which wealth distribution starts from yourself. So like billionaires truly do not care. Like they could distribute their wealth so easily and they don't. And then even it comes to a place of like millionaires can redistribute some of their wealth Mm -hmm. and they don't. Um, And then it's not only, but then it's like also like not only wealth, because like if you have the time and money to be someone who has wealth, you should get involved in your local community. You should Mm -hmm. be like, like how you are this girl, you should be looking at poverty and looking at class and looking at the ways in which you can personally give back and help and organizations to get involved in. I don't have all the answers to this. It is an uncomfortable thing because I, I, you know, I saw the, the tweet that you did where you acknowledged being privileged and I saw someone underneath it being like, so what are you going to do about it? Like, what, Mm -hmm. what are you going to, are you going to say, don't hire me for this job, hire this black woman? Like, what are, what does that mean? Like, what's the, so you can't even get your friends person who wrote in, you can't even get your friends to acknowledge it. Like you can't even get them to talk about it. You can't even get them to say that they have privilege, which people get so upset about that. And it's not, it's not that like you haven't struggled. It's that you haven't struggled because of race. You haven't struggled because of gender. You haven't struggled because of finances. Obviously, if you were hit by a car, you were hit by a car. Like if you had a job and your boss sexually harassed you, that happened. But like, it hasn't been because of your race and it hasn't been because of your financial standing most likely so that's all it is right so when people 
push back and it's like, so then what does it do to acknowledge your privilege? For one, I do it because if anyone is like looking at my career trajectory or like looking at the fact that I was able to go back to school, that decision to go back to school was easy because my parents are fucking paying for it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, in theory, I will pay them back over time, mm-hmm. but like I'm not taking out loans, so I'm not getting interest. Like mm-hmm. if I pay them back, I will pay them back that exact money mm-hmm. versus like what a real loan mm-hmm. is. Um, and so I just don't, I, I kind of want to acknowledge it in that like, if things are harder for you or like you're not seeing the same trajectory, it's because I have this massive privilege. Right. Like I'm not smarter than you. I'm not more driven than you. Yes. I'm not like more talented than you. I just have like a massive amount of privilege. I know that if I never sell anything again, I will never be on the street. And that's also, that's why I, that's why I say that my eyebrows are tattooed on. Cause I don't want anyone to think <laughs> that, oh, I just don't have as good of eyebrows as Gabby. The eyebrows are fake, guys. It's all a sham. You compare yourself to these people and it's just, it's work, but it's, and hard work, whatever, but it's, that's not it, dude. If you don't have generational wealth, like, it's just not the same level of like it has nothing to do with your talent. It has nothing to do with. Right. You know, I think I see a lot of stuff where people are like, well, then I got a job after college and that was so hard. And it's like, where was your job? Oh, your dad's like yacht company or whatever. Like, yes, the job was hard, but also like you have to think about like you were able to be hired by mm-hmm. this certain, you know, like. But then, like, I don't know what the answer is. I think the answer really comes down to redistribution of wealth. I think that is massively important. I think working for things like reparations, working for things um, like Medicare for all, I think uh, it's voting. It's voting for things that are against your best interest, but are better for the country and fighting for things that are against your best interest, because voting is like who even fucking knows they're going to shut down the post office and we're all going to be fucked. But but yeah, but I mean, supporting supporting policies that are against your personal best interest, higher uh, taxes, higher taxes, Tax me, baby, like, sure, like you love your your private ties to health insurance, but recognizing that most people don't have good health insurance or health insurance at all. And therefore, your health insurance quality should maybe go down 10 percent uh-huh. in order for everybody to be able to have health insurance. I think that's the next step. The next step is then being like. Up until now, I've had this incredible privilege, but I want the community and the country and the world to be better. And Mm -hmm. therefore, I'm willing to make personal sacrifices. It's also hard because like I've been working with an organization called White People for Black Lives. And it's Mm -hmm. this thing where like, obviously, most likely if you're white and you have the time and the privilege to get involved in activism, you will be involved like that's who will be involved in activism. So then you need the perspectives of other people. You need the perspectives of like, I, you know, it is all white people. Like I would hope, I don't know everyone in the organization. I would hope some of the people are low income or some, but like those people might not even have time to get involved in activism. So then right. what does the activism look like? Is the activism like actually doing anything? Is it, is it racially balanced? Is it um, like economically balanced? Like there's so many twists and turns to this that, it are just like you have to really sit and think about, you know, like who has the time to do the activism? Who has the who can be on the streets doing protests? It's just like I, I don't I don't know. I just saw like a I just saw a really awful tweet that was like this this um, news anchor saying cool pick me up story from a local community in Maine. This woman is 84 years old and she just got a job as a maid. 
and like meet Janet Hart or whatever. And it like showed an interview with her. And like every comment was like, this is a pick me up story. Like absolutely fucking not. Like this is, this is evidence that capitalism doesn't work. This is evidence that like, this is a dystopia. America is like, is like, failing its people. And I totally understand the anger. And I think probably the girl who tweeted that doesn't come from a place where her brain thinks that way. Mm-hmm. And and like, so the woman in the story said, uh, well, I uh, like, I lost my social security and that's why I had to take this job. And then I was like, as a reporter, me, as someone who comes from a background, a different background, that's the story. I, uh, I scrap this story. I up and write mm-hmm. the story about that. So, but because this this girl probably like got into the newsroom because she was able to do such and such thing, like it's that thing in Hollywood too, where like the barrier to entry only allows in certain people, which then perpetuates mm-hmm. media and, and art and things that don't serve everyone because you don't have enough perspective. So like ha- you need to like focus on that too. Like when your friends and you become whatever you're going to become, what are you doing to create more um, like opportunities for people who aren't like you? And that comes from first acknowledging that you even have privilege and not getting defensive about it. I don't even know if we solved this and I don't even know if my thoughts are fully formed. I I have no idea what to do. I feel lost in this space all of the time. So I, I apologize if I said the wrong thing. I apologize if I have acted poorly in the past and I, I just uh, I, I look for feedback and advice on, on how to move yeah forward. please write in and and let us know your thoughts on on this question I think this is something that maybe if you write in you know in a coming episode we'll read your reactions and thoughts on it because a lot of you guys have given us really amazing feedback if you have thoughts and you want us to share them please let us know and we'll share them and if you want to submit your international questions send it to just between us pod at gmail.com that's just between us pod, P-O-D at gmail.com. Up next, we have a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Tuck Woodstock. Stay tuned. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. Our guest this week is journalist Tuck Woodstock, who's been covering the protests in Portland. Hello, Tuck. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Of course. So, okay, so you're an independent reporter. Can you talk about what you've been doing in terms of covering the protests? Like, you've been posting to Twitter and stuff. Can you just explain, like, how that works if you don't have, like, an outlet? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I started going out to cover the protests within the first week, and I actually started... Uh, because I have friends at the Portland Mercury, which is like a sort of left-leaning alt-weekly here in Portland. And they were working full-time all day and then going to like live-tweet the protests at night. And they had been doing that for several days and I just wanted them to get to sleep someday. And so I asked them (laughs) if I could fill in for them. Uh, And so I started doing that a few times when the Mercury was paying me a little bit to do that. And then the Mercury, by the way, shout out to donating to the Portland Mercury, but they just like had run out of funds and they're like, we can't pay you to go out every night. And so I just started going as an independent journalist, which means that I would go out and live tweet every night. And then I would say, by the way, here's my cash app. Here's my Venmo. If you want to buy me Taco Bell, that would be cool. And uh, that's what I was doing for almost two months. 
And then all of a sudden this story blew up and uh, got national attention. And now, you know, I'm doing interviews like with y'all, but also with all sorts of, you know, outlets across the country and around the world. And still like, I'm just reporting for whatever people want to give me on Cash App and Venmo. Like there's no institutional support, like no one's giving me healthcare, no one's giving me a paycheck. Uh, All of the resources that I've received, all of the gear and like protective equipment I've received have all just been donated to me by people that want to help. And so it's very much like a community supported thing, which in some ways is stressful, but in other ways is nice because like there are no rules for me to follow. Like Mm -hmm. I just do, I go out when I want to go out. I like say what I want to say. And so in that way, it's great. Before you started this, would you have preferred to have been, you know, in a steady job with like one media outlet? Like, does this appeal to you long term? Like, it's such a different way to do something. Yeah, I love it. So I was in a full time media position for six or seven years. I don't know what time is. And then I actually quit in January uh, to make my podcast gender reveal and uh, work at a consulting company that I run called Sylveon, which is like an equity consulting company. And so already I had moved towards working for myself and gender mm-hmm. reveal is entirely run on Patreon donation. So I was already doing work based on individual community members handing me money. And this is just mm-hmm. different work based on different community members handing me <laughs> money. And so like, as long as that is sustainable for me, it's what I will continue to do because I prefer to be working directly for the community rather than working for like a boss who gets to dictate what Mm -hmm. I do and say. Um, So this has actually been really great for me. Also, I will say that like people have been generous in donating and I'm trying to remember that this isn't forever. (laughs) And this is like a very limited amount of time for me to make money. But also I don't want to be like profiting off of black lives being lost by police. Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't want like black lives, black people being killed by police to lead to me making a bunch of money. So I've been trying to redistribute as much of those funds as I like reasonably can. So like I've given Mm -hmm. uh, $2,200 to like the local bail fund and then a bunch of other money to other people and money to just other journalists that haven't been supported as much as I have that are also independent. And so I'm trying to like walk this line between like, this is my job and I need to like pay for myself and my health insurance. And also like, I don't want to like, I don't know. I just, it's uncomfortable. I'm sure y'all relate. Like it is uncomfortable to have more money than the people around you, especially for something like this. And so I'm just trying to be really mindful of uh, redistributing as much as I can to the community that's supporting me. And it's good to be a citizen journalist because you can just, you don't have to censor yourself and you can actually cover what's really going on. Because So can you talk about what's been happening in Portland? Yeah, absolutely. So Uh, The protests here started around the same time as all the other George Floyd protests started. And on the very first night, uh, protesters marched from North Portland to downtown. And the police headquarters there is called the Justice Center. And it is so cringy that we have to call it the Justice Center. Uh, But it is the police headquarters. And there's also a jail on top of it, uh, which most of us didn't know at the time. And the first day, uh, people went down to the Justice Center and, like, smashed in all the windows in the front. And uh, then the next day, people went back to the Justice Center again to protest. And then the next day, they went back to the Justice Center again to protest. And they just started doing that every single day since late May. And now it's whatever, July, uh, what time? Mm -hmm. July uh, 24th. And like, they're still doing it. And uh, so for a long time, it was the people protesting versus the Portland Police Bureau uh, for about a month. And then uh, Trump sent federal agents in to quote unquote quell the protest because across the street from the justice center is a federal courthouse, which is a federal building. And Trump just wrote an executive order 
that says that he can deploy federal troops to protect federal property. And so oh, all no. of a sudden there was uh, U.S. Marshals, Border Patrol, uh, there's four different groups, um, Homeland Security and some other group, oh, ICE, uh, like all there um, every single night. And, and Portland police was scary enough as it was. And when the federal agent showed up, it became even scarier because we knew less about them and there was less accountability and they were, uh, yeah, just, we didn't know what to expect from them. And so at first the protest, the protesters were like, Hey, our fight is with Portland police. It's not with the federal agents. And then over time, the energy of the protest, um, I don't want to say shifted away entirely from Portland police because there's still Portland police action, but there is a lot of focus on these federal agents right now. And then once the news broke uh, that these federal agents were, in fact, driving around and abducting uh, protesters into unmarked vans for, without charges, uh, then it became a national story. And it went from having a couple hundred people coming out every day to thousands of people coming out every day. And it went from being mostly young people to uh, people of all different ages and backgrounds who really wanted to come and take a stand against these federal agents. And so on one hand, this is amazing, right? Uh, and on the other hand, I'm curious to see if and when the federal agents leave, whether that amount of energy um, stays to oppose the Portland Police Department, because Portland Police is using almost all the same tactics that the federal agents are. It just gets less national attention for obvious reasons. So you're basically an occupied city within the United States. Yeah, we are. And it, it really is. Uh, considered a war zone at this point. Uh, the city of Portland is sold out of respirators and gas masks because there is so much tear gas used every single night that everyone's trying to get gas masks. Um, the I was talking to the New York Times because they wanted to use some of my footage and my friend's footage as well. And we all said, yeah, sure, like pay us our rates. And they were like, oh, we actually can't pay you because we don't pay people to go into those kind of situations unless we assigned it because otherwise it incentivizes them to like put themselves in unsafe situations. So basically what they're saying is we are treating this like a war zone, like the New York Times considers it a war zone. And it's like, cool. All right, cool, cool, cool. Well, I'll just go to the war zone for free then. <laughs> and uh, see what yeah. happens. What kind of tactics other than tear gases are being deployed? Um, the main ones are tear gas, pepper bullets, uh, other less lethal munitions, which could be um, rubber bullets, bullets that like shoot out paint to mark you or, um, what other things do they shoot at us? There's so many different things that they can shoot at us. Um, and by us, I mean, protesters, journalists, legal observers, and, uh, just random passerby that happen to be caught up in it. There's a uh, bull rushing, which is just when they literally sprint at you and tackle you and arrest you on that. Uh, there's just generally pushing you out of the area um, what else is there? Those are some of the main things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, my friend yeah. tweeted, uh, cause he was in Portland that Portland is not like destroyed to the point that it needed federal intervention. There was right. no need for this escalation. He was like, I walked around. It was totally fine. There was no purpose in sending the feds other than just to make things worse. Um, right. Because the description of it as a war zone is like, oh, well, then they had to send the feds in. But he <laughs> was saying it actually wasn't the case. Like, that's that's what happened, right? They just escalated it and sent sent the feds to a situation that didn't need the feds. Oh, yeah. The war zone is 100 percent created by port police and federal agents like they're, they're the ones with tear gas and they're the ones with munitions like they're the ones like 
tackling people and dragging them into buildings. Like the, the war zone is not from the protesters at all. The, the spiciest things that the protesters do are uh, throw plastic water bottles uh, and sometimes they'll make a small fire, not one that seems intended on burning anything down, just sort of like a fun bonfire experience. Um, right. Those mm-hmm. are like the most hostile things uh, that the protesters do. Sometimes when we get uh, tear gas, some of the protesters will pick up the canisters of tear gas and throw them back in the direction of the feds. But like, clearly that is something that has already been created by the feds. If they didn't throw tear gas, no one mm-hmm. would have any tear gas with their back at them. So, um, yeah, I will say, first of all, that this is largely consolidated in a couple areas around downtown Portland. Like if you want to avoid this action yourself, um, you basically just have to avoid like a three block radius of downtown Portland. Occasionally, there are demonstrations against the police in other parts of the city, but they're still pretty contained. Uh, The tear gas floats through downtown Portland. And so like that is, you know, gassing people like in their homes. Uh, and people who live on the street. And so that's been awful. But as far as uh, protester action, it's very, 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 very easy to live in Portland and never see this. There are people in Portland who barely even know that this is going on. Uh, As far as the federal courthouse is concerned, before the feds showed up, it was being used as like a place to do graffiti and or practice skateboarding tricks. But that was all that was happening at night. Like no one was paying attention to the courthouse until the feds showed up at the courthouse. Uh, And the acting secretary of the DHS, the Homeland Security, is claiming that if those forces left, uh, protesters would burn the courthouse to the ground, which is very funny because, one, no one was touching it until the feds were there other than to spray paint like a cab on it. And two, uh, if you were talking about the Justice Center earlier, and now that the, you know, the focus is on the courthouse and Portland police isn't coming out as much at night uh, out of the justice center, no one is touching the justice center. And so, you know, like it's the, the places that people are focusing are the places that law enforcement officials are coming out and shooting at them and tear gassing them. And as soon as that stops, literally what happens as someone who has been there almost every night, when there is no occupying force, what happens most of the time is people sit in the park, eat chips, play music and like have conversations. There is very little demonstrating that is done uh, until there is an escalation by some kind of law enforcement. I think the thing that really got national attention was these unmarked guards uh, putting people into unmarked vans, right? Mm-hmm. And what what happens to those people? Where are they being taken? Yeah, so they're being taken. I am unclear. I know some of them were taken to the federal courthouse. I think others were booked through Multnomah County, which is the county we're in, Multnomah County, um, like jail systems. So I'm not sure exactly which building they're being held, like either the Justice Center or the courthouse, but it's, you know, it's right there. Like they're basically just dragging people into the building that they're standing outside and putting them in holding cells. Uh, luckily so far, m- most, if not all of these people have been released, uh, re- like pending trial. So they're not like they're not absolved of all charges, but they're being released until their court dates happen. So that's been great, especially because uh, the federal system doesn't have bail. And so if you're in there, you're just stuck in there until your arraignment. And so it has been lucky that most of the folks with federal charges, of which there's been, I think, more than 30 now, um, have been released uh, with some restrictions. Like some of them have curfews. Most of them aren't allowed to get within several blocks of the Justice Center. But otherwise, they've uh, more or less been able to go back to their lives um, until their court cases come up. But I mean, these these uh, local charges when Portland police arrest protesters 
uh, is going through our new district attorney, who sounds like he's going to be somewhat lenient on protesters and may drop charges. But the federal charges um, are overseen by William Barr, you know, and like he's not going to be lenient on protesters. So uh, we haven't seen like how those cases will play out yet. But uh, it's, it's definitely a scary thing to think about. This is just an intimidation tactic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the charges they're hitting people with are absolutely absurd. Uh, A lot of them are like, you know, failure to obey, um, creating a hazard was one of them. A bunch of people got hit with assault of a federal officer, but all of those charges, at least as of a week ago, this could have changed now, but a week ago, all of the assaulting a federal officer charges were based on people pointing laser pointers in the eyes of the law enforcement, and they're charging people who use laser pointers on them as assault. And so like, yeah, it's just an intimidation tactic. It's completely absurd. Like none of the charges are actually, or as of, again, like as of a week ago, I've kind of lost track, but as of a week ago, none of the charges were like anything that you could argue was like actually a serious threat to like anyone. The DHS is is claiming that they are going after very specific individuals that they are targeting uh, because those people have, you know, perpetrated some sort of crime. But we know that uh, some of the folks that they were just pulling off the street were literally just folks pulled off at random. And uh, after they searched those people and couldn't find anything to charge them with, they just let them go. Uh, There's someone named Juniper who was riding in chalk outside the federal courthouse, just drawing a line because uh, they were trying to draw the line of where the federal property ended so that people would be safe, uh, so that they knew not to mess with the federal property. And they were like violently arrested. Uh, They're trans persons. So they were mis- they were arrested and then like completely misgendered throughout the entire process uh, because they were writing in chalk. And so that is just like, I, it, it's clearly unconstitutional. I don't have like any legal background, but I don't know how anyone could possibly argue that uh, someone walking away from a protest or someone writing on the sidewalk in chalk is enough to be violently arrested by federal agents. So, I'm going to play the person who is an idiot and an asshole. But let's say (laughs) that they're like, uh, well, it started because they broke the windows of the Justice Center. Um, Like, what what is what is the truth? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, at some point, you just have to ask yourself, like, what is the minimal amount of quote unquote crime or quote unquote violence that uh, someone needs to perpetrate? in order to justify having guns pointed at their head, right? Uh, Right. So there are a lot of situations in which uh, individual protesters have damaged property in some way. And most of the people there are not engaging in damaging property, but say some of them are. There have been other cases in which, like I said, people have thrown plastic water bottles, um, occasionally other things. I've heard glass thrown at some point in the last couple of months. One time they threw animal feed, which was fun. It didn't even make it to the law enforcement officers. Like it just like rained harmlessly (gasps) down on us because it's just grain. Um, Anyway, and so like there are some things being thrown, but like, again, like that's the minority of folks in the crowd. And also these are federal agents in riot gear and most of the objects thrown aren't even reaching them. And if they do reach them, like, they're in riot gear. It's, it's, I saw, you know, someone get hit on a riot shield with a water bottle yesterday and it had zero effect. Uh, so anyway, uh, all that is to say is like, yes, there are individual people in the crowd um, who are doing things that are like technically crimes, for sure, for sure. Um, do those people deserve to be shot in the head with less lethal munitions? Uh, 
do those people deserve to be uh, tear gassed repeatedly? Because I will point out that tear gas is a war crime and the science is still out on what it does to us. So we're all getting tear gas every single day. It's having these wild effects. Uh, you know, there's a pandemic and tear gas really, really messes up your lungs. Uh, my lungs were completely destroyed for like two days until I got a gas mask. Uh, so like, does that justify that? Uh, some of these, uh, federal agents are going out. Well, I'm sure all of them are, but some of them are going out with live ammo. I assume all of them have a sidearm with live live ammo. Portland police goes out with live ammo, right? That's like kind of the whole point of (laughs) Black Lives Matter protests is that police are fully armed and can kill anyone at any time. Uh, so the question is like, at what point is it appropriate to like grievously harm or kill or, you know, otherwise like inflict damage on protesters is it because they broke a window is it because they did a graffiti is it because they stood in a sidewalk while other people did a graffiti and those are all things that we're seeing happen right and so like yeah i guess if you think that it's appropriate to shoot and gas and arrest people for uh spray painting like fuck 12 on a building but like i can't argue with you but most people wouldn't say that that's the case even the local government doesn't want these federal forces there, right? The the mayor and governor have spoken yeah. out saying they want them gone. I would love to talk about that. Yeah, it's so interesting because the mayor and other city officials really don't want the federal agents there. And they're talking about how everything that the federal agents are doing is like a disproportional use of force and is like incredibly inappropriate and like unconstitutional. But Portland police has been doing the exact same thing. Like, you know, federal agents like hit an unarmed protester in the head. Uh, Portland police has hit unarmed protesters in the head. Uh, Federal agents have used tear gas. PPB has used tear gas. Federal agents have done violent random arrests. PPB has done violent random arrests. It was so bizarre because the other night I was there and our mayor, Ted Wheeler, uh, was doing this performative thing where he stood on the front lines uh, of the protest and was like, if y'all get tear gas, I'm going to get tear gas. And so we got tear gas real bad. Uh, and then he left uh, because, you know, he had tear gas and he was like, this isn't fun. So he went back to city hall. And meanwhile, protesters continued to get gas. And then within like half an hour, Portland police showed up and also threatened to tear gas us. And the mayor is not only the mayor, he's the police commissioner. And so the mayor was in city hall, like doing interviews about how tear gas was unacceptable and how the federal agents were using like disproportionate amount of force while his police department was also declaring a riot and threatening to tear gas us and use crowd control munitions. And so it's just complete upside down world because it's like, oh, you don't want the feds to attack us because y'all want to attack us. This is ridiculous. What do you think that their logic is like? Is it because of how it appears to the rest of the country having these federal agents there or they just really are so ignorant of their own actions? It's just optics. They just, uh, you know, like Portland is seen as a real liberal city and this mayor is seen as a a liberal mayor uh, by people who don't live in Portland. And so, yeah, they they, you know, they want to be seen as in opposition to the Trump administration. And so they're like, we don't like, you know, having this occupying force. And the truth is that like, the city of Portland is pretty powerless to expel these forces, right? So I'm sure they also just feel threatened. And so uh, they don't like being like part of a national story in which, you know, Donald Trump is sending federal agents into this city. They would like to be seen as having some sort of power. uh, But, and they want to be seen as, you know, the good guys in all of this. And unfortunately, like that is the national story that's getting out there. And so I know that like uh, the Portland Press Corps and like, which is the name of like this unofficial 
group of uh, independent journalists that has been out there every night. Like we are really trying to like actively shift the conversation towards like, yes, the federal agents are doing like really, really appalling things. And it is really violent and terrible. And also sometimes at literally the exact same time, Portland police is doing this exact same thing. And so when national mm-hmm. attention leaves and those federal agents move on to other cities, by the way, everyone like look out because it's horrifying. Uh, our police department will still be doing those same things. And the protests will probably go back down from thousands of people to hundreds of people. But like none of the issues will have been solved. The federal agents leaving does not solve any of the issues of police brutality in Portland or anywhere else. Yeah, they're looking at other cities like I've heard tell of of keeping your eye on Portland because they're looking at Chicago and they're looking at like other other cities where how is the response? Because maybe we could send them to, to Detroit or to Chicago or you know, anywhere else that we like invent a reason. Right. It's all liberal mayors. Yeah. He only wants to send them to cities with liberal mayors. Right. And it's so bizarre to hear him insist that like the protests in Portland have been very much quelled is his wording. When in fact the, the protests in Portland grew tenfold, if not 20 fold since he sent those federal agents then. And so it really, you know, it's not like, Trump has ever told the truth about anything, but it is really bizarre to hear him claim that it's going very well here. The ACLU of Oregon has been suing, right? And they they successfully just got something passed that they cannot attack medics or journalists anymore. Yeah, so I'm part of that lawsuit, so I can't talk about it too much, but uh, I can oh. definitely <laughs> tell you that, uh, yeah, uh, it was funny. I was, lead, I was lead plaintiff on the city lawsuit for a while until I asked them to please not do that to me. So there was a lawsuit called Woodstock versus city of Portland. And then I was like, please don't do that. Uh, but anyway, so I'm still part of this lawsuit. And so they had already gotten this lawsuit that Portland police could not um, assault or arrest journalists. And of course, Portland police, you know, ignored that to some extent, like they arrested Andrew Jankowski, who is uh, a queer journalist who is very clearly labeled as press. Um, they've assaulted other people, but they did get a little bit better about letting us do our actual jobs around them. And so, uh, unfortunately, right around the time that the ACLU got that restraining order against the Portland police is when the feds showed up. And so just yesterday, ACLU got that extended so that federal agents are also not supposed to assault or arrest us. And not only uh, did that get passed, but the judge actually said, you have to do a really good job of telling the federal agents that. And part of the decision that the judge released was like, you have to make sure that every federal agent knows this information. And despite that, I know so many journalists that got hit with different munitions last night. Uh, And so I'm not, I I don't think it is really doing anything yet, uh, if at all, but we'll see how that plays out. And if they face any sort of repercussions uh, by violating that restraining order. Are the federal agents wearing anything that would identify them in the way like, you know, having a badge number? Right. So, again, like this is all mirroring Portland police, right? Because, no, like the federal agents do not have badge numbers that I've ever been able to see. It's really difficult to even tell what agency they're a part of because the insignia that shows that is pretty small. And when it's midnight and they're super far away from you um, with tear gas shooting at you, like you can't read that insignia. And so it's really hard to tell what's going on. But at the same time, I just want to point out that this was like a precedent set by Portland police because throughout this entire protest, um, Portland police was given permission to cover their names and badge numbers with duct tape because both uh, Portland police 
and federal agents are claiming that they are scared of doxing. And so they have to protect their identities or will dox them. And I'm like, this guy is so funny. There's this one police officer who's he they um, are using these two digit numbers that don't really correspond to anything. Uh, But this guy's number is literally 12. And he is out there pointing guns at people's head, even when all of his fellow officers have like lowered their weapons, he just will not lower it. And I'm like, this guy has been posing this huge threat to people every single night. And as a journalist, I have tried to figure out his name and I have lawyers who have tried to figure out his name. And Portland police is like, no, we absolutely will not turn over the name of this person. And so like, yes, the federal officers are completely unidentified. So are Portland police. It's completely bizarre that you can have someone tear gash you, shoot at your head, and you are not allowed to know as a protester, as a journalist, as a lawyer, as a medic, who that person is because you could dox them, question mark? <laughs> uh, before we move on, what advice would you give to the rest of America um, and, and <sighs> what you've learned from what's going on? I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether to give advice on going to protests or advice on, you know, local police stuff. I will say that if if you're going to protests of this kind, particularly of the feds, but I'm sure this is useful no matter what, uh, I am recommending that no one goes out there unless you have a helmet, a respirator, and goggles. Uh, these federal agents have a seemingly unlimited uh, supply of tear gas. Uh, they have a, a seemingly unlimited amount of munitions, and they have absolutely no qualms about using them without any warning. Like That is the difference, I would say, between Portland police and the feds is that the feds aren't required to give any kind of warning or dispersal notice. Uh, and so if you're there, like you need to be ready for them to do anything at any time, even if there's not even any agents visible because they could burst out of the door and start shooting. Uh, so that is something I would warn. Um, I would just think really hard before you're in a case where you could get, uh, picked up on federal charges because those are really serious and they do go through William Barr. Um, what else? And just like, yeah, just be ready. <laughs> like, like, Make plans, oh you know, with your friends and family and decide what your risk threshold is. And if you can figure out anything you can do in your city to like maybe prevent this from happening uh, before it gets there. I don't know what that would be because, you know, we didn't know about this till it was already here. But if there's anything all can do proactively, like start doing that now. Wow. Thank you so much for being on the front lines and for, you know, showing what's actually going on and also making that important notice that the police are doing the exact same thing despite what the local government is saying yeah so i just want to say that like it's obviously horrifying but also there has been such a beautiful showing of community throughout all of this and i just like want to make sure people hear about that as well uh so you know we are getting tear gas every night and that means that every single time the tear gas goes off strangers are turning to other strangers and like giving them eyewashes and like running around trying to like give each other like snacks and medical care and like making sure everyone's okay. And everyone like has a buddy in all of this. There are organizations uh, that have sprung up just to give everyone like free snacks, free uh, medical equipment, free protective equipment. There's a place called Riot Ribs that uh, just is run by mostly houseless folks that volunteers to feed anyone who wants it as much as they want. 24 seven in the park across from the federal courthouse. And so like, yes, everything is scary and horrifying, but it is also one of the biggest shows of like community and mutual aid and support that I have ever seen in this city. And so like that has been extremely, extremely cool to see. And hopefully that continues and that that's the spirit of this, that 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 sort of grows and people who weren't previously involved are involved. And that's the best thing that I've seen come out of all of this, too. Yeah, it's really it's radicalizing 
everyone. It's radicalizing the parents. It's radicalizing like all of the people that never cared before. And like that mm-hmm. has been very, very cool. I think that's a, a lovely time to transition into hypotheticals. I'm honestly, I'm very terrified right now and freaking out, but we have to continue with the format of the podcast. (laughs) So hypotheticals is a game show where you and Gabby are going to be my contestants. I'm going to ask you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many clarifying questions as you want, and then you would tell me what you would do in that situation. Um, And then I just arbitrarily decide if I like your answer. So there's no rules and... I don't have a badge number. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm going to lose, but let's do it. (laughs) Our first game. Would you stay with this cheater? You find out that your spouse of seven years has a secret double life as a vigilante. Mm. Every time they've gone on a work trip, they've actually been battling crime and injustice right in your hometown. Unfortunately, it's with the help of their secret millionaire girlfriend, Would you stay with this cheater? They claim they need the girlfriend for her money, but prefer you overall. Tuck? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, I feel like this is a context in which I would be like, you know what? I understand why you didn't tell me uh, about the crime for OPSEC reasons. I would love to know if you're dating someone else or not, though. So (laughs) let's figure out a situation in which you can not tell me about all of the crime like fighting you're doing to keep you and me safe, but uh, let's have more transparency about who you're sleeping with. Yeah. Yeah. Because what if that millionaire girlfriend, like you can, you can be polyamorous, but you gotta at least be honest with each other. Exactly. You were monogamous though. That had been your understanding. Oh my of the God. So, so when he's gone on this work trip, I'm assuming it's a, he, when he's gone on this work trip, He's he's sleeping with this person too? Yeah. And why was that and that's necessary because of the money? Right. To fight the injustice. Well, but okay, but here's my problem with vigilantes. Are they just an offshoot of the police in some ways? They're only doing crime against the police. Hmm. They're just taking down police officers. I I still I think I have to go. I think like I love that. I love that for them. And like I'm so happy for let's say her who's the crime fighter now. But I I just think I just think I can't be a part of it. That's how I feel too. I also hate secrets. And so I'd be like I'm so happy for you. And I love what you're doing and I absolutely cannot be around it. But please, uh, please keep doing it and enjoy. Well, they become so depressed that you broke up with them that they stop their vigilantism. And then, believe it or not, Homeland Security takes over your whole city. You know what? I am not <laughs> responsible for other people's mental illness, so don't do this to me. Yes! You know, that's the right answer. Uh, uh. <laughs> okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? You've noticed that your child, eight, has no interest in dogs, and you find this deeply disturbing. In an effort to combat this, you adopt a dog and use a speaker attached to its collar to trick your child into thinking that the dog talks to them from 5 to 6 p.m. every night. In reality, it is you in the other room doing a quote-unquote dog voice. Your child forms an incredible bond with the dog, but fails to make any human friends until the dog dies 10 years later. Are you a terrible parent? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah, you probably shouldn't lie to your kid for 10 full years. That seems uh, bad. Yes. 
Why does the kid not? Why does the kid think other dogs don't talk? Ooh. Uh, no, the kid. The kid assumes that like the dog has to choose to talk to you, and that this dog has chosen him to talk to. And they're like eighteen now because they were eight. So now they're eighteen when they find this out. <laughs> and no, they, never, they never find it out. The dog just dies. <laughs> so they're a complete social pariah until one. And then one day they're like, "Oh, I have to make human friends." And then like they're like. 40 in a marriage and they're like oh, I wish the dog would choose to talk to me and their husband is like what? There's like a 16 year old who has not figured out that there's a speaker on the collar and that their parent disappears every day from 5 to 6 like, wasn't In the world of hypotheticals <laughs> Like weren't you sometimes not home from 5 to 6? I'm just saying Then you had someone else take over yeah. <laughs> but How do you explain Very that it's committed. a different voice? Everyone can do the dog voice. This is just a lot of time and energy. <laughs> I'm going to say terrible parent because also it starts from the flawed premise of why do you need your child to like everything that you like? They're their own person. They don't have to like dogs. Uh, strong okay, agree. I take issue with that. You do have to like dogs. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. But I will allow that you are a terrible parent. Oh my God. But quite creative. <laughs> okay, our final game. Is this person an alien or just rude? <laughs> <You're> co- <laughs> I love when people have no idea what this game is. And they hear the questions and they're like, uh, what? What is this? I feel like I listened to it before and I got through, would you stay with this cheater? And I was just like, no, I wouldn't stay with this cheater. And just like, listen to something else. <laughs> so I missed this part of the game. Believe me, we've been told this is the only part worth listening to. I know. <laughs> okay, our final game. Your coworker writes down everything you say as you are saying it, Ugh. so that if you ever contradict yourself, they could show you the hard evidence. When you ask them to stop doing this, they reply, I'm doing you a favor. Is this person an alien or just rude? For example, one time you said you prefer vanilla to chocolate, but then asked for a chocolate cupcake during an office birthday party, and they called you out in front of everyone. Let me ask you a question. Is this person uh, a man? Um, uh, non-binary. <laughs> okay, you, you tricked me. <laughs> you, I've been out, I've been outmaneuvered. Uh, <laughs> I think that they are rude. Why are they just doing it to you? Why are they just doing it to you? Because they're a time traveler from the future and they know that you're going to be the best president ever, but you're not going to get to be elected because you're known as being a flip-flopper. So they want to instill in you that you should never contradict yourself so that the American people will elect you so that you can save the world. I feel like it, then you couldn't be the president because I murdered my coworker who was doing this to me and disqualified me. But, well, that's uh... on you. I don't then. I'm concerned that in the future, murder will not disqualify you. You know what? That's <laughs> no. fair enough. Wow. <laughs> Al- Allison, you know what? You got me. You got me good. <laughs> so, thank you so much for joining us. This was amazing. How can yeah. people find out more about what you're doing and your work? 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, so you can find me right now on Twitter at Tuck Woodstock, which is the only thing I have time to do right now. But in my normal life, I also have a podcast called Gender Reveal, which is about trans people, except Gabby was on it once. And uh, that episode uh, remains dear to my heart. I decided I needed a token cis person and it was delightful. <laughs> so I came on to answer too. questions like, how do you know you're cis? It was yeah. very fun. <laughs> it was great. That's amazing. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about cohabitating. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics! X, 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 baby! Baby! So, cohabitating, wild, sexy, exciting, (laughs) new, fresh. (laughs) Let's chat about it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Was that you? You scared me. You scared me. So, this is an example of what happens when you now live with your partner. You yelled. You yelled. You yelled. (laughs) Oh, my God. What's an example? We are talking about cohabitating with a partner, and you scared the shit out of me. I'm sorry. Oh my so god. So it seems like it's going pretty well over there. It's going so well. <laughs> yeah, we uh yeah, well I don't know where Mal is sometimes and so I'll like hear a noise from the other room and I'll be like, "Ah!" and it's just Mal. Gabby, when you record the podcast, you yell. Well then stay out of my room. <laughs> I am. I was in the other house. Oh my god. So that's interesting you call it your room. <laughs> I know. We've had this conversation because I have an office and I call my office my room. And Mal's like, I really wish you wouldn't call your office your room. I wish you would think of our room as your room. And I was like, yeah. Um, but you're doing it a little different, right? Because you haven't moved into like a permanent place. You're sort of like subleasing for the summer. Yeah, we're subletting a place. So we are looking for a new place to live together. Uh, we are navigating like, okay, what do we both want in a house? What do we both need in an apartment? Like, how do you, you know, what, what a number of rooms that we need? Mm -hmm. Um, how many bathrooms I'm insisting on having my own bathroom that may not be possible or in the budget. (laughs) You're wait, (laughs) I want want my own bathroom. Like why? For pooping? For, For pooping. But yeah. would you do all of your other stuff in that bathroom too? Or it would just be like a poop-in bathroom? So, okay. If it only has a toilet, then it would just be a poop-in bathroom. And maybe a place where I could spread out my my stuff, like my mm. makeup and stuff. But I don't think you can pay a thousand more dollars in rent for your own bathroom. Like, otherwise I have to sleep in that bathroom. So I think, like, it, it ups the price. So it may not happen, but it is a dream. Why are you so hesitant to, to poop in a shared bathroom? Um... I don't know, cause I don't. I want to be in there for an amount of time that they don't know I'm in there. <laughs> I want to just be in there. I want to have a ticking clock. I don't want them to be like, "Get out! I have to pee." What if I get diarrhea? There's just too much to unpack there for what this episode. If I, what if they're taking a bath and I get diarrhea? Yeah. Then- so that's important to think about. Okay. Then, then you should look for a place with two bathrooms. That's okay. But it's going to be too expensive. But any two bed, most two bedrooms have two bathrooms. No, no, not what we've been finding. I mean, some, some, but not all. But oh, so really? that's the type of thing you have to think about when you're living with a partner, moving in with a partner. Is where where are you going to poop? Mm-hmm. So how has it been so far? How long has Mal been there? So Mal's been here like six weeks. 
Uh, and it's been lovely. I mean, it's interesting. Like when they first moved in, I think we felt like we had to be together all the time mm-hmm. and like spending the time together and stuff. And then now it was like it got to a, a cool place where like they are working at night with their door closed and they're doing music um, or uh, they're cooking and I'm somewhere else. Like we don't have to like be up each other's buttholes like I think we thought we did when we first moved in together, which I think is a common mistake. Mm-hmm. Was it like annoying that you had you felt like you had to be together all the time? No, because I hadn't seen them in like three months. Right. So I wanted to be together all the time. But but then it um, it naturally moved into not having to be together all the time and like working during the day and stuff and and not needing to sit with the other person while they cook or whatever. And uh, and we still do that because it's lovely. But it's like, yeah, it's been it like slowly cooled off into like what we would actually be like in an actual house, you know, Mm hmm. Um, it is like a, a splitting of chores and things like. Isn't that the best? It's been so great not to have to do all the chores. <laughs> it's it is nice, but like I it is that. like I am a person who needs direction. So like once you say what you want me to do, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. But I'm I like I'll I'll hit, come to it on my own. Like oh the the you know the laundry needs to be done or like certain things. But I think Mal has dealt with there was like a bit of a tiff where mal was like i feel like a nagging housewife and you're like the husband who i'm like can you do the dishes mm. and now and like so now i've changed my thinking where like mal was at the grocery store and i walked around the house being like what can i do what needs doing um well, that's nice yeah and and so like i think i've i'm becoming better and like growing to be better in like a you know in a way of like how do I contribute or like what, what can I do to, I don't know, to make their life easier or what, what is just sitting there? Um, so we've, but we've been, you know, I was like, do we need to make a chore chart? They also, this is a big thing. How do you guys figure out what to eat for dinner? Uh, it's a nightmare. Yeah. So Mal, Mal was saying they were, they said that they called their mom and they and they were like, I get it now. I get why you were obsessed with asking us what we wanted for dinner <laughs> at 3 PM. I get why this was a whole thing. I like, well, so they were like, I, th- there was a whole fight where they were like, I don't want to have to ask you every day at 4 30 what you want for dinner. Like I want sometimes to you to be like, Hey, here's what we should have. Or like, just be part of the conversation. And so I set an alarm on my phone for 4.30 every day that just says, ask Mal about dinner. So that at 4.30 every day, I go, hey, what do you want to do for dinner? So that they don't feel like it's their responsibility. What time um, do you guys eat dinner? Like 6 or 6.30. Yeah, us too. I love yeah. an early dinner. <laughs> yeah, so if you need, like, you know, to take something out or whatever. But, like, I remember my mom being like, what do you guys want for dinner? And me being like, Jesus Christ, woman, it's 4.30. Like, leave me alone. (laughs) And now I'm like, oh, and now both Mal and I are like, oh, you have to take it out. You have to, like, make sure it's what the other person wants. You have to, like, make sure you have enough. Like, because you're thinking of another person now. It's not just you. It's not just like, oh, my God, it's 11.30. I should order, like, a sandwich. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you have to, like, actually care about this other person, which is a a whole new world. We have Friday night takeout night. So every yeah. Friday night we order takeout and I look forward to it all week. Oh my God. What is wrong with of, us? There's a lot of discussion of what is going to be the takeout for Friday night takeout night. I I want the listeners of this show to recall I was cool. Like, Were do you? you remember that I, w- 
was cool. When? When? When the beginning? In the very beginning, I was so cool. Uh huh. And now I'm just like, well, it's my 4:30 dinner alarm. Like <laughs> I, I have, I'm still cool. I do drugs. Okay, guys. I just mean that, like, you know, it's there is when you have to care about someone else, it's truly different. Like when I lived by myself, it was a bachelor pad. It looked like shit. Mm-hmm. I had like, you know, I lived like a like a 27 year old boy. Like I had posters, movie posters and crap everywhere. And like, and like, um, I, or I ordered, you know, disgusting food. And and like, I was just like, I didn't care about anything. And then now that I live with someone, I'm like, the sink must be clean because someone else is looking at it or like, okay, you have to refill the toilet paper or like, okay, you have to like, there's so much more. We have, we go to the grocery store and be like, what does everyone want? Caring about Mal makes me have to care about myself. That's beautiful. That's growth. I think it is growth. It is. But also, you know, I think they, we both had to, Mal is, Mal is more like emotional and touchy. And so like, you know, they're, they were like, like if I'm doing something in the kitchen, they want to come over and hug me. And we had to have a conversation about kitchen hugs and how I cannot, I cannot be hugged while I'm cooking. Mal's staring at me right yeah, now. Yeah, you sound like a delight. <laughs> It's like personal space. Like I need, I don't, I can't have kitchen hugs. You have to figure out what, what you're willing to compromise on. What like, you know. Or what you're, how much personal space everyone needs. There was like a time too where I was like, I need an hour. Mm-hmm. I just need to sit in, in quiet. I need to sit quietly. Remember I've said this on the show that I like to just like sit quietly and stare at a wall. Uh-huh. So, so, you know, sometimes you have to just sit quietly and stare at a wall. Exactly, and no one can be near you to hug you, or that. No one can be near off. you. <laughs> I think it's called meditation, but I call it wall time. I've loved living with Jake because it. After years of just like being in Los Angeles, away from my family, it's like I'm living in a family again. Oh, that's so nice. nice. Yeah, that's really sweet. Yeah, we've fully we've fully met, started calling Beans the baby. Oh yeah, you weren't already. No, I go to Jake all the time. Where's the baby? Yeah, we we're like, we we're like, oh, does the baby need to eat? Like we fully call the dog the baby, which is such oh, a absolutely play acting. I was like, if we actually do have a baby, Beans will be devastated. I uh, was in class last night and Jake came out and was like, where's Sugar? And I was like, I don't know. She's not with you. And then he looks all around the apartment, but she was on my lap the whole time. <laughs> You're just doing pranks? Yeah, but then I could tell he was getting worried. So I shouted, you're being pranked. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that's what it's like living with A-Raz. Wow. Wow. Tamika, want to come on in and share your thoughts on whether Gabby's still cool or not? <laughs> Tamika never knew me when I was cool. That's true. <laughs> um, yeah, I've only ever known you since you've been with Mal. So Wow. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, how do you guys feel about like balancing like the beauty of these moments of being quarantined with the person that you love with everything that's going on in the world? It's wild because also Mal and I are non-monogamous. So I'm in a relationship model currently that I did not sign up for. And also like generally they would be going out to dinner with their friend or they would be, you know, go I would be going out with my friend. Like we wouldn't be in each other's space all the time. Um, and so that has been... It's actually been fine and good and okay, but it is like a little bit like, you know, I want to like, I I definitely was watching like hours and hours of TV with with nobody judging me and feeling like no one knew what I was doing. And that's the sort of freedom 
that I miss of like bachelorhood of like no one caring what you're up to. So, but like that could happen. Like if Mal, if it was not a pandemic, Mal could go out to dinner or or drinks or whatever, and I could do whatever I wanted unchecked. But now that, so I think living together would probably get easier if we weren't quarantined. I'm going to be devastated when Jake has to go back to work. <laughs> ah! We are such different people. But we're apart all day. I mean, like he's in the second bedroom. So like I see him occasionally, but it's yeah. not like we're just like sitting and talking with each other all day long. We're still mm-hmm. doing our jobs and lives, but it's nice to just like not be in the house alone all day. It is um, nice. It is nice not to be alone in many, many ways. And Mal is also great at like pulling me away from work and being like, how about we eat or how about we sit outside? You know, like they're very mm-hmm. good at like not, you know, because otherwise I would just work all the time. Um, but it is it is interesting that this is happening now. I feel like it's a boot camp, you know? Yeah. Quarantine was a great way for us to like realize that we're 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 good we could get engaged we could spend the rest of our lives together because like we're fine just hanging out all day every day yeah (laughs) we've like had like a fight but it was not even about like like us being together all the time it was like about something else but yeah i mean the dinner thing was an argument but i just was like yeah i'm wrong i'll change i'll be better (laughs) wow growth you guys you know how many years it took for Gabby to say I was wrong? <laughs> I say it all the time now. It's it's like every time you do, I'm like, what? <laughs> I say it all the time. Now, like, the floodgates are opened, and now I'm just like, oh, no, I was wrong. Like, we're just Isn't like, why great? did this happen? I'm like, because I was wrong. We oh. made a sketch years ago about how Gabby refused to apologize for anything. Now I'm just apologizing left and right. I think that's great. much cooler, though, right? Someone oh, who can't. better. Yeah, that's great. It's better because it it takes the pressure off of me being like, well, here's why this happened. This is this and I'm lying. So now Mm -hmm. I'm just like, no, it's because I was wrong. And then that's it. What are they going to say back to that? Nothing. That's what I taught you. Yeah. If you apologize, (laughs) it's the end. Yep. (laughs) What do we rate this episode? I rate it um, 100 out of 100. uh, Be okay talking about money and privilege because you have to. Mm Mm-hmm. I rate it uh, 11 out of 10 badgeless uniform guards. Fuck that. Fuck that. Uh, I rate it 5 out of 5 takeout nights. Oh, Oh. Friday night takeout night. Friday night takeout (laughs) night. Thank you so much to Tuck Woodstock for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon, and our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Please check the links uh, for Tuck's Patreon and um, and for any way to support Tuck, and also follow them to find out more about what's going on in Portland. We need all eyes on this now. Stitcher.